Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Hey, stop dying, everybody. Doing a series of Don't Die Bob Talks. This is series one, and uh, we join Bob speaking to clients at Aloe House in Malibu on January 16th, 2018. What to expect in rehab? Let's join. And that is what brings us to this, is to be cool to people. The staff should be cool to you. Somebody was cool to them, so you, you, they should be cool to you. Now, this runs both ways. You should be cool to staff. They have their job, and they, they have to enforce certain things that we've all decided. Long ago, before they worked here, we decided the rules. So don't get mad at them, right? If the, the no phones when you're in detox and stuff like that, and 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 some of the things that you bump heads with. You're always going to bump heads with things in a rehab center. Understand that we're going to try to be as cool as we can to you, and you be as cool as you can to us, and we all should be able to be here long enough for your amygdala, it's called, to recede. For your addiction, which is a simpler way of putting it, your craving, your disillusionment about your life, all the things that addiction is, just be with us long enough until that subsides and have a little faith in us long enough until that subsides. Then from, from the moment it subsides, it's all the rest of it's just a game plan of how you're going to cope with life. That, but, but the main primary value of rehab is to get that thing inside you that just wants to kill yourself with drugs or alcohol to subside. Addiction is a multiplicitous level of, of problems, right? So you have a genetic predisposition, you have biology, you have psychology and your neurobiology, and then you have sociology and who you are and what your education is, your so social environment. So biopsych social is what it's called. You all did one upon admission, right? The so first thing they do in your chart is do a biopsych social Shows how old I am. When I say chart, I mean like this old plastic thing with paper in it, but it's a biopsychosocial. And so they ask you questions about your family history, right? That's to get the biology. They ask you questions about your education and your marriage status and your, about you. That's your sociology. That's who you are, your ethnicity, biology, and sometimes cultural sociology. Then comes the, the thing that's indefinable, which is your psychology, right? Um, that's subjective, and it changes all the time, right? When I was a kid, I was diagnosed gravely emotionally disturbed. Then it was changed to manic depressive. Then it was changed to depressive. Then none of that helped. I just kept taking meds after meds after meds all through the late 70s and into the 80s, early 80s, just this med and that med. Meds that were way worse than the meds you guys are taking. The meds you guys are taking now are just, they have very little side effects. These drugs in the 70s had tremendous side effects. Like women would grow hair and stuff. Like, true. You know, and, and still with some of the Seracols and Neurontin and Risperdal, there's increased appetite. I remember some med I was on like when I was in college in like 80 or 81, I would just find myself waking up eating like just anything like barbecue potato chips and root beer and shit. And I'm just like, what the fuck? 
And like in the middle of the night, I was on benzos and psych meds, right? <laughs> you're just in the middle of the night, you're just like, you're kind of sleeping and benzo unconscious, and then you all of a sudden find yourself eating, right? So every individual neurobiology is different. And then what they're doing with these meds is just throwing darts at a dartboard, right? And, and you have to stay with a psychiatrist long enough for a year or two to really zero in on what dose and what medication works. But none of us do that. We come to these treatment centers, they label us something, we take some meds, they, we don't think they work. Here's an interesting thing about meds. If you think they, you're trying to decide whether they work, they probably don't work, right? Because people who find the right dosage and the right medication know that it makes a profound difference in their ability to function, in their baseline, in their ability to regulate with, with, with peers, right? So if you're depressed and you find the right dosage of antidepressant or SSRI and you really zero it and, and find the right thing, you never go back to feeling that way that you've always felt since, since the onset of depression, right? Unless you don't have that kind of depression at all. And that's what inevitably ended up happening to me. I had been all these meds for all these depressive and psychiatric terms as they came down through the decades. Um, and this one doctor I was seeing, he goes, you ever heard of dysthymia? And I was like, you know, it sounds like diarrhea. I'm sorry. It doesn't sound like something you really want to have, dysthymia. And I was like, no, what is that? And he goes, I think it's what you have. And I go, describe it. And he goes, you know, it's, it's, it's a bottom line melancholy and pessimism. I said, well, I got that. I thought that was just punk rock. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? Um, and, but when some event in the environment happens negatively, you, the floors drop through floors, drop through floors, and you want to kill yourself. It's that. That's what I have. Now, I was 38 years old. I had been to 24 treatment centers. I had been under the care of 35 doctors and psychiatrists. And no one had ever said that thing. You're pretty much just a, you know, just a punk rocker. But if a girl leaves you or you don't get the job that you want or your record doesn't sell, you just spiral and spiral and spiral in negativity and depression and, and non-functioning until at the very bottom of that is always suicide. I said, that's what I have, right? And I tried to commit suicide two times. So I said, okay, because I'd been around a lot of doctors. I was like, okay. And he goes, there's no medication for that. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? There's a medication for everything. Not for that. Also known as chronic depression, right? So you got your psychology. Every individual in here needs to figure that out for themselves. You've all got individual neurobiologies and psychologies and traumas that takes years and months and uh, with different professionals to figure out. And you have to have the faith in it and determination to figure it out. What science is doing in our generation with 
more and more biological, scientific, neurobiological, genetic understanding is connecting the dots of behavior. There's a lot of people right now, Dr. Drew included, that thinks that basically this is all driven by biology. That we've been over-appreciating environment too much, right? That's what those doctors are suggesting, that your kid has this problem because it's a new manifestation of what your family has, the family history of biology, right? So we had a simpler understanding of how biology intergenerationally affects, right? Now, one thing that I argue all the time is we've never lived at a time like this. Instant everything, right? That's the sociology of it. Instant everything. When something happens, I know about it within like three minutes. Your sociology is the environment you live in. I think you should, you should have a phone if you're paying your own phone so, a cell phone bill. I'm a grown adult. I pay my own cell phone bill. It doesn't even dawn on people in our culture that you're responsible for you. Society is you become an independent individual, autonomous to yourself, and then you make decisions that you want to do in life. But if everything's mitigated with your parents till you're like 42, that's not going to work. We can't have a society like that. So we've created this, this sociology, this society that is sick. It has signs and symptoms of sickness all over the place. Never before has a generation like you millennials grown up in a society like this. So I always say the society itself, bigger contributor nowadays in my belief than the psychology. I'll give you an example. How long is a long time ago? Is a thousand years a long time ago? Is 300 years a long time ago? In the history of civilization, it's not. 400 years ago, 80% of the Mexican continent died of, of, a, of a smallpox and influenza virus that came from the European settlers coming to Mexico that their biology was not prepared for. And 80% of the population died. That's a catastrophe. This stuff that we're calling catastrophes aren't catastrophes. They're just news cycles. And you're growing up in it. And I think it's discouraging you on what, what life is about. It's obviously discouraging people. Why? Uh, give me an example. In, in 1985, I became a daily heroin addict, daily heroin use addict. Right? I was 24 years old. I remember because I was dope sick. And then somebody wised me up to what dope sick was. And I, I was like, well, I don't want to be dope sick. And they're like, you have to use every day. And I was like, okay, that seems all right. In 1985, I looked it up. There were an estimated 558,000 heroin addicts in America. Seems like a lot. One in 430 Americans was addicted to heroin. Wait. In 2017, there were 20 million opiate addicts in America. 20 million. In 30 years, from 500,000 to 20 million. That's one in every 16 Americans is an opiate addict. 7 million Americans are on Suboxone. 7 million. That's the replacement therapy for heroin addiction. Seven million people. So obviously something's wrong with the society if one in 16 people just want to anesthetize themselves away from existence. What is it? Lack of jobs, lack of opportunity, lack of hope, lack of... These are all the sociological stuff that you should be thinking about. <clears throat> so your, the, the psychology is up to you. The sociology that we're powerless against, except for you can choose how much you believe it and engage in it. Eight months ago, I got so fed up with reading all the hate on Facebook, I just disconnected. I haven't looked at it in eight and a half months. 
my life has changed not one bit. Knowing what people think of this or that or, you know what I mean? I do miss pictures of my friend's kids, but those were so small and in between with all the vitriol and all the hate and all the, right? So I've been on social media since it started because, you know, I'm fascinated by pop culture. So you've got this society that you're living in. You got to deal with it. You cope with it however, however you cope with it. But once you start to focus on your psychology and your life and you bettering yourself, you have less time to wallow in the slings and arrows and misery of our culture because you're busy going to school, right? You're busy going to work. You're busy trying to you know, save enough money to get an apartment. You're busy trying to raise your kids. You're busy. And what we have is a lot of addicts, this new generation of addicts that aren't busy. And then the rehab centers tell you, don't be busy. Why do they tell you don't be busy? Because you sitting in that chair makes the money. That's why they tell you don't be busy. You should be busy. You should be getting a job. You should be falling in love. You should be breaking up. You should be coping with life. Life on life's terms. Every day, sober with the community around you to help you through it. And then at a certain point, you cope with it so much, you can do it on your own, right? I was four and a half years sober. My life fell apart on November 10th, 2001. Or no, uh, September 10th, 2001, the day before 9-11. So here's what had happened. In my arrogance and know-it-allism, I, had, I owned this house in Echo Park. Anybody know where Echo Park is? So the houses there are old. They're like from the 20s and teens, right? My house was built in 1888. And the house next door was built in like the 20s and 30s. And it had a shared driveway of which it went to a Y and it was supposed to go to our backyards, right? Mine, you could pull and there was a little gate there. And I could pull into my park in my part of the property the next door neighbors had built a cement fence and and, and over the years they didn't have access to their backyard right so they couldn't um couldn't access their backyard so we had an argument an easement argument over the driveway of which i won but i lost right so at first we tried to work i tried to work it out with the neighbor i said hey you know Whoever parks first, like, let's be kind of aware and just toot toot and, you know, get your car out if you park behind or whatever. And um, it just it just never worked out. So finally, a friend of mine said, you know, they have no access to their backyard and you do. You'll win an easement argument. So I went to court and I did that. So I won the easement. This didn't make for very good relations with my neighbor. She couldn't park in the driveway anymore. Right. It was really strained and tense and. And I tried to apologize, and I said, you know, let's forget it and just park in the driveway, but let's try to be more cool to each other. And she was looking at me, and then um, she said a racist thing, which was weird, and I was like, whoa, where's that coming from? And so it was weird. So a couple of days, a couple of weeks after that easement thing and after the apology and trying to work it out with her, I get this knock on the door. It's a city inspector's. She had called the city to inspect my home because she knew it was built in 1888 and it was kind of run down and the foundation. I'll give you an example. You don't want this knocking on your door. When the winter before, when it was raining, I felt dripping coming out. I went up in the attic and I could see that one of these beams like this was all rotten and warped, right? So I went, 
to an auto parts store and got a, a ton tire jack and I got a big four by four, a big uh, four by six from Home Depot. And I got two friends of mine and we pushed it out of the way and we just used the jack to lift up the roof and kind of just eyed it. I guess not really what you want the inspectors to see. When you stood in one part of the house and somebody was on the other part of the living room, they were like two feet below you. This is not who you want to see knocking on your door. So my home was condemned and I had 90 days to bring it up to code, right? That was in July, August of 2001. My girlfriend that I'd lived with for nine years was worked in show business and she went back and forth in New York a lot and she was in New York. On the 10th, I find out that she's actually living with another guy in New York when she's there, right? Not the best news you can get, right? My house has been condemned. The only person on earth I trust has just betrayed me, right? I was four and a half years sober. I got in my car. I went to where I know they sell heroin and crack. I bought it. I brought it back to my house. I put it on tinfoil. I sat in the living room and I just couldn't smoke it. I was just like, fuck this. And I was talking to myself and I was going crazy and I smashed up all of her stuff. Trust me. It felt like I was going insane. I tore, I broke everything in the house, broke the dining room table, just smashed it and smashed it. And so then a friend of mine had heard what had gone on and came over and he was standing at the front door and has a glass door. And he was like, you don't want to see nothing. So he finally came in and he goes, dude, are you high? Did you go get high? And I go, I went to get high, but I didn't get high. And he goes, where, you bought dope? And I go, yeah. And he goes, where is it? And I said, I threw it in the backyard. And part of my chaos for like an hour. You know how exhausting it is to tear a house apart for an hour? You have to take breaks. <laughs> right? And so he goes walking out to go look. And it's dark by this time. I turn the lights on. I go, do it right out here. And he's looking. He goes, where? Dude, come on now. And then we looked and my dog was laying unconscious. In the middle of the fucking smashing the house, I got to take a break from that to bring the dog to the vet. So we took it to this vet and I'm walking in, holding the dog and she's kind of breathing. So I know it's going to be all right. So then we're walking in, I'm carrying this 80 pound German shepherd and he's standing there opening the door and I go, dude, what do we tell them? You don't realize it till you're walking into the lobby of the veterinary. So we bring it in and I told them, you know, I'm, uh, I have a, you know, a situation where I'm a, uh, I, the dog, I think, ingested heroin. And the girl looked at me like, okay, and they got him in. And they, they her name was Bella. And they got her taken care of and everything was okay. And she was going to stay overnight. And, you know, like, you get this nervousness, like the cops are going to be called and come out. You know, there's no cops called on a dog eating heroin. I can reassure you that. So if it happens to you, don't be nervous. But so I go home and I'm sitting there. Now my house is all smashed up. Now I have clarity. Now I have my sober friend with me. Now I got love. Now I'm coming back down to reality. That's when I realized, like, I, you know, you have to do some soul searching. Everybody wants you to do the soul searching now when you're on like day 18. No, you're going to do your soul searching when your way of functioning has shown you that you are a fucking asshole. I use pejorative language, non-clinical language, because I think we all understand what that means. I was not facing my depression. I was not processing my trauma. I was acting as if I knew how to live life, and I didn't. 
you can fake it. All you need to do is make some dough and like be, be you know, be semi sane to people and you can seem like a functioning person. But that stuff that's inside that you guys are talking about with your therapist and whatever, that stuff will come out and you'll see it very clearly. And what I saw was I had alienated my son. I had grown cold in my relationship and alienated the most important person in my life. I had become an arrogant asshole who felt like I should have the driveway. I was intolerant. I was not cool to people, to my son, to my partner, and to my neighbor. So that's why I say this psychology and this trauma and stuff, just give it time. Have some faith that you got some problems there. You're going to fucking sort them out as it goes along. Expect it to surface. And then you're less worried when it does. But what everybody does, get on the right medication, do good in treatment. And then like somebody, something bad happens eight months from now and you go use again. And everybody says, what happened? I always know what happened. You used before you healed before you gained insight. You gave up the journey of insight that leads to the palace of wisdom. It does. And I'm telling you, everybody's on that path, you know, that you can gain insight and wisdom every month, every year, every day, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit closer now. You know what I mean? To the point where you can live life on life's terms and everything's cool. Right? That's the goal. Because if addicts don't do that, they'll use. You'll just continue using. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call. <laughs>